This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, we will chat with Stephen Mandel. He was mayor of Edmonton as he navigated the final days of getting a new arena deal. What can he tell Calgary as they try and do the exact same thing? Elon Musk has officially taken over Twitter, and we'll also have a conversation about the World Economic Forum. What is it? What does it really mean? What do they want to do? The city of Calgary is venturing back down the road again in terms of getting a new um, event center slash arena built in that city. And I'm on the record pretty loudly and clearly as saying, get it done. I, th- I you know, and I, I, I know all the arguments against it and, and all the rest, but I think, um, hockey and you know what? Beyond the hockey, just having an arena like that is, is important to the city. So, um, as I said this week, though, provincial funding sort of crosses a line for me. I don't think that can happen. But anyway, uh, let's talk with somebody who really knows the ins and outs of getting an arena like this built within the province of Alberta. We're going to chat now with Stephen Mandel. He was mayor of Edmonton from 2004 to 2013 and was mayor who was on council, leading council in putting together the Edmonton arena deal. Uh, Mr. Mandel, thanks for uh, joining us. It's been a while. It's nice to chat to you again. It's nice to talk to you as well. How's life? Good? Yeah, not bad. Pretty good. How about you? How's the family? Everybody all right? Everybody's good. You know, life goes on. Life goes on. <laughs> uh, let's go back in time a bit here to uh, when you were mayor and you were working with the Cates Group and the back and forth and the stop and the start and the on again, off again. When you think back to getting that arena deal across the finish line, is it nightmare fuel for you or is it a point of pride in saying, you know what, we did it? Well, obviously, it's a point of pride. I mean, you look at what's there today. It's a gorgeous arena that that is one of the real um, positive things for downtown. And then afterwards, you know, Mr. Cates invested, you know, billions of dollars into downtown. So, you know, the the whole concept of it is has been uh, very effective at, at meeting the needs of what we set out when we when we put the deal together. Um, so, um, it's a great sense of pride for myself, and I hope many Edmontonians enjoy it. Not everybody can afford to go to the arena, but. Yeah. I don't go either, but uh, it's still a great sense of pride of, of us having a facility that uh, can retain a hockey team here that will allow them to be be successful. Now, you talk about something, and I was going to bring it up later, but since you've raised it, because the argument comes in immediately when we start talking about this, and you heard it, why are we building something for billionaires to employ millionaires to play a game? I can't afford to go. Who cares? They can build their own arena. That's an argument that comes up immediately. Um sure. How, how do you answer that? I guess it, it means it means more than that to the city, right? Yeah, I, I think that people and, and I, I fully understand the argument. We heard it a lot that uh, you know he's got lots of money and these guys are millionaire hockey players. Let them pay for the bloody thing. But the reality is that's not how the world works in Canada. Most arenas have been, uh, to a certain extent, um, funded by some form of government support, and those who haven't been went broke, and then they have then they were bought again and, and refunded and refinanced in a variety of ways. But you, you look at what the Oilers mean to the city of Edmonton, the Flames to Calgary. Yeah. Tell me one thing that is more important to our cities as far as an entity goes. I mean, obviously, University of Alberta or our heart centers, et cetera, et cetera, vitally important. But to a quality of life, um, how many people 
uh, will be out celebrating the Oilers 6-5 win last night. People have to put in perspective that what are what are the requirements in order to build a good city. And whether we like it or not, um, there's leverage for those who own the team. And uh, we found that we found a common ground in which Mr. Cates paid his share, paid a reasonable share. We paid a reasonable share from new money generated from the facility, and it was built. Um, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't an easy process. It wasn't uh, one that um, <clears throat> one that was when it happened overnight, but it did. Yeah, and I, I'm Edmontonians are very proud of facilities, but you know there's a chance we could have lost the hockey team, and I'm, people will argue they wouldn't have gone. But uh, and then if they would have gone, we would have had to build a new arena in order to get a hockey team here because uh, the old um, Northlands facility was old, decrepit, and falling apart. Yeah, absolutely, no question about it. You mentioned. Um it, it, it at times didn't seem like it was going to happen, and we know what happened in Calgary already. They apparently had a deal, or very close to having a deal, fell apart. Now they're starting again. Is that to be expected if you were chatting with Mayor Jody Gondek or somebody else in Calgary about this and say, hey, you know what, it's not going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be ups and downs. Is that sort of the experience you'd share with them? Absolutely. People have to remember that there's you know there's there's two parties, and if you've got one person, like let's say in our case, the Cates Group, going to sign a 30-plus-year 30 30 lease, yeah, and they have to look down that road. Have to look at what that's going to mean to them in a financial way, and how that's going to work. Then there's a city. How do we can protect our citizens so that we're not subsidizing this in any way or form over that period of time? So there's different different perspectives and different ways of looking at it. You have to try to solve both the both concerns. And I, I think originally when uh, in Calgary, you know, they thought they had a deal, but then they looked at what the costs were going to be, and they weren't going to meet the needs. Um, and so. Um, you know, they, they stayed away from the table. Now, in our case, uh, we felt the deal we presented to Mr. Cates was fair and reasonable. But when they left the table, um, we waited, and then they came back because our deal was reasonable. I don't know what the Calgary deal is. I um, um, I, I know that we, we had a four-part deal, um, and, you know, if different groups would pay for it. Now, the one part, uh, which was the province never bothered to come to the table um, because they, uh, they had this... Um, um, perverse way of looking at uh, of what needs are of, of our city while across the country um you know people governments put money into stadiums across well, i think bmo field got built in in in, uh, in uh, toronto or mm-hmm. other fields where money was given by the by the federal or provincial governments to, on the auspices of oh we're having some games come here so we're going to give you money right and there's a professional team that's a bunch of crap you know it's a bunch of crap at all i mean they're just an excuse um, the, the Oilers or and or the Flames are vitally important to to our cities and to the citizens. I mean, I don't you know. I open the newspaper today and be any article about much else but the Edmonton six five win. No, you're I mean, right. And so let's face the reality and then help. Now I understand the challenge with people saying, "Oh, those you know, those bloody blankety 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 yeah, billionaires," yeah. but that's not solving the problem. Let's find a way to solve the problem. Um, interesting development this week with Danielle Smith appointing Rick McIver as sort of a point person to lend support. We don't know exactly what that means or what it looks like. Tell us about the relationship you had with the province. You went many times to the province and said, hey, help us out. Uh, Allison Redford at the time said, yeah, no, not going to happen. We're not writing a check for it. not true at all. No, no, that's not true at all. What did she say? It was in the budget. Allison Redford said yes, and the money was in the budget. Okay. And then then what happened was we were supposed to... It, it was put in the budget in, in the form of a $50 million allocation um, for cooperation, regional cooperation. Okay, so, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't directly for the arena. I mean, there was the grant for the regional wow. cooperation. There was the MSI funding. So they said, no. you're, you're welcome to use it if you want. Do I have it wrong? 
No, no, no. The, the, the $50 million was put in directly for only Edmonton could use it, and it was supposed to be used for the arena. Okay, gotcha. Okay. We could have used, we could have used it for something else, but MSI money was not going to be allocated to, uh, um, to, to the arena. The, the council had said that. But they had they tried to find a way um, to do it with, you know, what you couldn't do through the back door, front door, they're doing through the back door, which was right. which was putting money into the, the budget, which was to cover regional cooperation. So, I mean, it's... It was, you know, okay, we, what do we care? We just wanted, we sure. wanted the money. Money the money has no color. Give us the money and we need that. And then some ha- something happened. I think that somebody asked her during a speech about what to do. And then she said, well, I'm not going to support any arena. And then, and then it ended up um, disappearing. So, um, gotcha. Anyway. Okay. Um, outside of the money, the, the, having Rick McIver appointed a point person, he's going to sort of be supportive. He's going to lend an ear, doesn't have a say, but he wants to be part of the process. Uh, do you see that as a good thing? I mean, how, what role could the province play in all of this? Well, I think it's a great, a great, a great, uh, opportunity. Uh, Rick's a great guy. I applaud the province for wanting to do this. Um, Calgary needs a new facility. Um, they can sit back and, and do nothing like they did when we were there and, have the city fight like hell in order to get an arena built. And well, I think Calgary is Calgary's in desperate need of a facility. The saddle home is old, decrepit. Um, and, and I would hope that uh, they could find a way to, to build a new facility. It's a great city and they should have that opportunity, but, and there's no buts beyond this, that if they get 500 bucks, we deserve 500 bucks. If they get 500 million bucks, we deserve 500 million bucks. Right. There should not be a one of, and I would hope that the premier would, uh, would find a balance. Edmonton usually gets, I'm not sure using the word, but there's a, a different word that can happen to people. We usually get it in Edmonton. So um, I would hope in this instance that uh, the Premier Smith would see there's a um, an opportunity to help Calgary, but also to repay Edmonton for, uh, um, for the effort they made. And so there's a formula. There's a simple formula of 25, 25, 25, and 25. Owner pays 25, city pays 25, ticket pays 25, and the province pays 25%. And that uh, and that would be a reasonable way in order to to make it work. Um, one of the criticisms that uh, I might have, and I know a lot of our listeners do, and there are texting in right now, and I'm wondering how you feel about it. It seems to me, I, I understand some concessions had to be made to make this deal work. So I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I don't want to be sniping yeah. at you. Sure. Uh, what happened with Northlands? Did you give up too much? And is that something that Calgary needs to be cognizant of? You know, you, you can't throw in everything. No, but you know something. We tried to work with Northlands to come up with uh, some solutions, and we had several meetings with the people in charge of Northlands. And uh, and you know people aren't going to like what I'm saying, but the fact was we made some suggestions about what could be done and how we believe that funding might be available through a variety of sources to make some change at Northlands, which could uh, make it effective. I mean, um, but they felt that they had enough cards or whatever reason that um, they didn't have to agree with what we'd suggested or come up with any other ideas to come up with a compromise between themselves and the case group um, that would uh, face the reality of what was happening. Case group wanted to run the arena. They wanted the revenue from the arena. They're going to pay their share for the arena. Um, Northlands didn't have any money to pay for the arena. They're going to have to go to government to pay for yeah. whatever share they had. So, I mean, at the end of the day, they couldn't be a player because you had no money. You couldn't come to the table. And so they had an opportunity to make some dramatic changes, which could have, I think, been an incredibly effective uh, help. For example, let's find a way to so – they should have kept horse racing, which I don't want to get into that battle. But at the time, they could take and move that uh, their, their stands around the other side so it's attached to the current Northlands place. So yeah, when you have yeah. events, 
you have all this potential people coming into the um, coming in the casinos. It would have been a great a great uh, a match. There could have been other things that could have been done that we suggested, but nobody wanted to hear it. I'm not blaming Northlands at all. I mean, everybody was passionate and and whatever they wanted to be during that time. But solutions, um, um, we suggested solutions, but nobody liked them. It sounds to me uh, like the bottom line here is, and my take on it is, okay, you're going to get this. This is important. This is important to the overall makeup of the city. You need to just understand how vital this is, not just hockey, but having the facility and all the all the good things that go with it. And it's going to cost you some concessions. You're not going to get everything. There are no perfect deals, right? So it's going to take compromise on both sides. And and if that happens, ultimately it gets done. And and that's exactly true, Shay. The, you know, as an example, and I'm not trying to compare, it's bad, but you're going to build a new um, um, recreation center in the west end of the city, which is vitally needed. That's yeah, 200 million States. bucks. Yeah, it's 200 million bucks. Well, I mean, how many people can use that, that versus how many people want to um, go to Oilers games, go to concerts, or have the Oilers in Edmonton. I mean, let's look at the value of what that goods are. Yeah. The recreation sale is vitally important, but so is the Oilers and to who Edmonton is. I mean, look at Winnipeg and uh, in Quebec City when they lost their teams. And, you know, Winnipeg got one back because of various circumstances. But the fact is you lose one, you don't get it back so quick. And, you know, I did not want to be the mayor that lost, <laughs> that lost the Oilers. God in heaven, that would have been a disaster. So, um we need to put it in perspective that this is what we need to do in order to have this. It generates a tremendous amount of revenue for the city. Um, it makes, you know, downtown restaurants are full yep. um, when uh, when the games are on, when concerts are on. But with the, let's just sit for a second. Look at how bad downtown is right now. Mm-hmm. You're um, so right. Take, take away uh, the arena and all the cases built there. My God. It's a wasteland. It's a wasteland. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. a wasteland. So, I mean, I, I, I great, Great pride in, in what, what we accomplished. And, uh, um, and, you know, I, I, you know, Mr. Cates invested billions of dollars in the cities. Our deal with this has been tremendous when it comes to how it's fallen out. So, uh, um, citizens have paid very little, if anything. And, um, um, we've been, um, uh, I think very lucky because of Cates' commitment. So, I mean, I think everybody won in this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, many people say, you know, you're full of CRAP, you know, but the fact is, is that, uh, um, I would love to sit down and debate anybody that the benefits of this um, were, were tremendous. And I hope Calgary gets it. You know, Calgary's a great city, and I hope that the, the mayor and Rick McIver and the premier can come to some agreement as to some formula with, uh, with uh, what, what they can, how they can build their arena. But at the same time, they must consider reimbursing Edmonton for uh, the costs we've incurred at the same level that Calgary should Calgary receive. Yeah, if money comes forward, I think you're right. That's going to be a major, major issue. Uh, Mr. Mandel, thank you so much for your time. Always a delight. I appreciate you joining us. Another big story in the news right now. And I don't know. People, a lot of people are getting all worked up about this. Here's a reminder. Twitter is voluntary. You, you, you don't have to be on Twitter. You, if, if you don't like the way it's going or just don't go there. It's quite all right. But, um, of course, as you probably heard, Elon Musk is now the owner of Twitter. It cost him $44 billion. Uh, the deal that went on and on and on and it was going to happen and then it wasn't. Ultimately, it got done yesterday and immediately. Elon Musk fired the C-suite. Some of the people in charge of Twitter got rid of them. Um, so, I mean, he makes a splash. That's what Elon Musk does. But 
Should people be getting their hair on fire about this? What does this mean going forward? We're going to find out. We're going to chat now with Dr. Annabelle Kwan Hase, a professor of information and media studies and sociology at Western University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, hello, Shay. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's just go back through the history of this. Why did Elon Musk ever decide he wanted to own Twitter anyway? What was the thinking there? Well, I mean, I think he did not follow your advice because I like your <laughs> advice. You know, if you don't like what you see, leave the platform. Yeah. But um, I think he, you know, Elon Musk, that's not his personality. So um, I think the more he spent time on the platform, you know, the more he, you know, kind of observed, you know, uh, how the platform was being regulated, like it was very heavily regulated. So I think he was really opposed to that. And um, his vision, you know, for social media is as a kind of open space, uh, a space for debate. And I think he sees it really as literally a town square where everybody can do and say anything they want. Now, why did he why did he stop and start on the deal? What changed as it went along? Because like you say, I think that was the thinking. Originally, he thought he'd jump in and he'd fix everything. And then the deal fell apart. What, what happened there? I mean, what changed his mind? Do we know? Yeah, there were, I mean, there were really a couple of things happening at, at the same time, Shay. So, I mean, one of them uh, was just kind of a massive backlash on Twitter. So yeah. I think that, I mean, it really kind of shows the complexity of this because, you know, as long as you're hearing what you want to hear, uh, Twitter is a, go- a great platform. But I think what happened to Elon Musk is that, you know, the moment he kind of uh, thought he would buy it, people really kind of um, were very you know, concerned. I think Canadians, you know, were very concerned. But on a global scale, I think we heard a lot of voices, um, you know, raising a number of different concerns. And then he kind of realized, well, this is going to be a lot more difficult uh, than I originally thought, you know, and it, it, it may not play out the, one, the way I want it. And um, in particular, because I think his vision is kind of twofold. I think uh, we often kind of focus on the public sphere or the public town square vision that he right. has. But I think in addition to that, he, he really wants to make it kind of like a mega platform, like the way Facebook wants, you know, uh, you know, meta wants Facebook to become this new kind of meta. I think he has similar visions as well for Twitter. You know, like you said, the town square, um, you know, all voices. I mean, in terms of freedom of speech, I don't know. I don't know how much it applies to a private platform run by a billionaire to begin with. But that's a lot of what the conversation is about freedom of speech. So how does that fit into this? And, you know, how does that affect that discussion? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that, first of all, um, you know, most of these platforms need to have like expert advisories who can, you know, provide advice on how do you even put something like that in place? Because any town square, I mean, you can kind of imagine that any town square where you let people do whatever they want can quickly become chaos, anarchy. So that's very similar with Twitter. I think the, the idea, you know, the, the, you know, the kind of vision of a town square is great um, as a fantasy, but implementing that in reality is completely different just because Mm -hmm. first of all uh twitter falls under canadian law like there's so much you know regulation that already is in place so regardless of whether you know it's private or it's you know uh traded it it still has to follow you know all of that uh you know that regulation yeah um ultimately what does it mean for twitter i mean he's a businessman he he didn't do this out of the goodness of his heart he wants to make money that's what he does um 
what will this mean for? I don't know. I I I keep seeing people saying they're abandoning the platform. What do you think it means for Twitter going forward? Well, I think there's a number of trends. First of all, yes. I mean, we often hear that whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, uh, there's kind of like a short-term backlash from users mm-hmm. who say, you know, um, you know, leave Facebook, leave Twitter, quit. Um, but the reality is that a lot of users have established a persona. You know, have established their own personal accounts and identities over years often and so i mean they're not going to leave that you know maybe thousands of followers you know and a platform for engaging and following news so it is really valuable for users so i don't really see uh users leaving the platform short term i think the worry really is much more long term um you know i think shay as you suggested you know it's going to become much more, you know, it's going to follow much more a business model, I think, similar to uh, Facebook and other social media, where the emphasis is no longer on connection, but rather on commerce. And uh, that is the part that I think many people are kind of worried, and that could have long-term impacts where, you know, people may be looking to other platforms um, like TikTok, you know, or even newer platforms, just because that commercialization is really problematic. Uh, of course, so much of what happens on Twitter, I mean, at least in the world I live in, and this this is the other thing, it's not the real world, it's sort of, it's the bubbles that we all inhabit. It's There's a lot of politics, there's a lot of political discussion, there's political announcements, there's all that stuff. Um, and, and, and you know how misinformation and all the rest affects that. So in terms of, I mean, I don't know how it can change, but it, do you think it could change and affect the way that politics function in our part of the world? I think it really could. And um, one of the big, big worries here is really the idea that um, he he wants to deregulate um, uh, Facebook and Twitter. So I think the deregulation piece is where I worry in, in terms of, you know, it impacting potentially debate and even, you know, like election outcomes and the like. And uh, we've seen that before in other platforms. And I think what happens here is that, first of all, we see an amplification of hate speech. So that can really be difficult to kind of monitor and manage because, you know, like there's it's so difficult to evaluate, you know, what is an opinion? Uh, what is a personal attack? Um, and so there, there needs to be kind of a lot in place in terms of, you know, uh, human coding, you know, algorithm, et cetera, that comes mm-hmm. together to kind of counter that. Uh, but the second thing that also really worries me is the systematic silencing of some voices. And they can happen at different levels. It can happen, you know, at the level of the algorithm, uh, you know, making some information more prominent. And he's been saying that he wants to change the algorithm. So certainly a big worry, but it can also happen at the layer, at the level of more kind of, um, you know, personal attacks, just, you know, being, um, you know, be, being allowed, I would say on a platform because, you can kind of imagine it as a journalist, potentially, or a researcher. You know, if you're putting um, findings out there or you're, you know, providing opinion on, on a topic or an issue of debate, you know, these are often controversial, but they require a lot of debate and perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we could see here is that through personal attacks on people, on family, in particular on, you know, racialized people, um, you know, we could see these voices really then being silenced just through the way uh, that these attacks could be targeted. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, just changing the way the platform functions. Um, doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate the insight. Well, Shay, thanks so much for having me. And I, I, I do think many of us are now wondering, well, should we stay on Facebook, uh, on Twitter? Should we, you know, what, what social media should we be going yeah. to? Yeah. 
I think you're right. And we'll, you know what? We'll just see how it goes. I mean, we don't even know what it's going to look like, right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Thanks so much for, for having me. Yeah, Dave. you bet. Thanks very much. We're going to dip our toes in the waters here that I know we're going to, we've we've been talking a bit about division and and, uh, polarizing issues and all the rest. Well, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to jump in with both feet here to wrap things up on this Friday morning. We're going to talk about the World Economic Forum. What is it? I mean, I know there's all kinds of, you know, there was a column recently by a well-known writer in uh, in, uh, Alberta saying, you know what, it's just a bunch of rich people getting together to pat themselves on the back for, um, how prominent they are and all the good things that they think about. And, 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 and there's other people think that they're plotting world domination, right? You've heard those things as well. And, and Danielle Smith recently coming out and saying that nothing to do with the World Economic Forum should be allowed in Alberta. So it's, um, it's definitely taken on a life, I think, larger than even the organizers of it had ever anticipated. But what is it? Let's just try and get an explainer as to what it actually is and see if we can get some better understanding of the whole situation. For that, we're going to chat with Marvin Ryder, an associate professor of marketing at McMaster's DeGroote School of Business. Um, Marvin, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Glad to be with you, Shay. Let's just, okay. World Economic Forum. What is it? I mean, what do we know? How did it come about? What is it meant to be? Okay, so let's let's take you back to the beginning. The very first meeting of this thing happened in 1971, so that's over 50 years ago. Okay. The the person whose brainchild this was was a uh, Swiss professor, Dr. Klaus Schwab, and Dr. Schwab is still with us. He's 84 years of age, and as I understand, not necessarily in the best of health. You heard just a moment ago on your newscast that Jerry Lee Lewis passed away at 87. I don't think Dr. Schwab is that much longer with us. Anyway, his vision way back in 1971, and at that time it wasn't called the World Economic Forum. It was called the European Management Forum, and it really only had a European vision, but his philosophy was that we, different countries in the world, need to cooperate on economic issues to try to avoid some of the things that he had witnessed in his life, like the First World War, the Second World War, and those sorts of divisions we need to somehow come together. And so you'd be correct in saying that one of his missions is globalization. It was strictly focused on Europe until 1987. That's when the name was changed into the World Economic Forum. And I suppose the most important thing that your average listener would want to know is, well, how is this financed? Is Dr. Schwab a a billionaire uh, investor signing this? And the answer is no. Um, What they do is they charge a membership fee. And there's one thousand companies uh, who are members. They pay roughly a half a million Swiss francs. So you can do the math quickly. A thousand times 500,000. They get 500 million Swiss francs a year. Dr. Schwab is paid a million dollar a year salary, a million, excuse me, a million franc a year uh, salary. And uh, primarily what they do, as was suggested, is they get together annually for a big conference in Davos, Switzerland, a ski resort. Uh, There are 500 meetings of different kinds. They call them plenaries where people can get together. And mostly it's really businesses talking to business and talking about multinational economic integration. Now, invited, in addition to the people who pay to be there, are political leaders. And there's there's always been a controversial list of these over the years. Uh, Prince Andrew has attended these. Prime Minister Trudeau has attended these. But they don't attend them every year. They have to be specially invited. And so usually the World Economic Forum will set a theme 
This year, for instance, its theme was uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and so they would invite various people. No Russians went to the World Economic Forum, so they really only heard the sort of Ukrainian side of the story. And in this discussion, it was including things like rebuilding Ukraine afterwards. Um, one last quick note, and then I'll give this back to you. I mentioned globalization. So generally speaking, these meetings get held annually, and oh, there's a lot of talking, but a little short on activity. But whenever the forum is held in a year when there is something bad happening globally, so a couple of years ago it was COVID, the pandemic, back in 2007-8, there was sort of a global recession, this is when the conference reminds people, well, you know, if we would do more cooperation, we might be able to avoid some of the ill effects of these things. And it was at the forum back in 2020, at the early days of COVID, that this whole concept of what was called the Great Reset, and this is what has led conspiracy right. theorists to, to many things. All the Great Reset was was to say, you heard a lot of people saying, well, we want to get through COVID and go back to the way the world was. And what the World Economic Forum says, well, maybe there's a better place we should go towards. Maybe we can reset some of the world's economies and deal with some other issues rather than simply trying to go back to the old way. Maybe we can move towards some new way, but they're never very clear on what that new way is. So I, I view them quite benignly, as, as you said earlier, a bunch of rich people getting together, talking about issues, high on talk, low on action. Well, that's the question I have here. Do they have any way of, other than influence, I guess, um, setting policy, dictating, anything like that? Or is it merely a, 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 a big chin wag and, and, and a get-together? I mean, how, how does it get to the point of their controlling the world? Yeah. Well, uh, I would say I don't see them controlling the world. Now, to your to your comment, you could argue that this week-long conference is a, a form of lobbying. And so if I invite, say, a president of the United States or the leader of China there, they're not just going to give their speech, get back on a plane and fly away. They're going to be schmooze. They'll be at dinners. They'll be at cocktail parties and different people both businesses, mm -hmm. but other political leaders will try to grab their ear and share something. So there's a lot of lobbying that goes on, but they don't set any policy. Okay. And the only way they really have an influence is if one of these political leaders say, oh, you know, that's a really interesting idea. I'm going to take that back to whatever country I'm from and see if we can have a vote on it. It, it is very hard for me to point at any one activity over the last 50 years that I can say if it wasn't for the World Economic Forum, that would not have happened, whatever that is okay okay i was gonna ask if there's any examples of coming anything that we can point a finger to um the other one is why do politicians go, i mean is it just wanting to hang out and and rub shoulders with the rich and famous and the glitter why do politicians flock to these things we know some have said they'll never go again but they did before i mean why do so many politicians take part yeah. Well, remember again that the members of the World Economic Forum, there's 1,000 of the world's largest businesses. Now, define that as businesses that do at least $5 billion of activity. So if I was a leader, I'm a leader of Canada, or frankly, if I was the, the premier of the province of Alberta, and I was invited, remember, not everybody gets an invitation, mm -hmm. and I have a chance to talk to leaders of $5 billion corporations, and I think Alberta is a really good place that you should be operating in, but for whatever reason, I'll make up a name and say, Amazon, you're not there, or Microsoft, you're not there, and I get a chance to do some one-on-one -on -one lobbying, I'm going to do that. 
keep in mind that most of the times I'm not going to get the chance because I'm not going to be invited. So I, I would go. I'd like to make my high-profile statement and get my little moment in the, the glitterati, as you say. But I would also love to talk to some people who may, I would like to see become part of my Alberta economy or the Canadian economy. And so I'm going to press my case as much as they're going to press theirs. Gotcha. Okay. Um, in terms of where this might go with everything, the way it's exploded and become such an issue, and so many politicians now trying to distance themselves from it, could it be um, ending, or is are there any other groups out there that have a similar stated goal? I mean, what's the future of these international forums like this, do you think? Well, I think international forums are going to continue. Generally speaking, we've realized pandemic is a great example that that wasn't just a Canadian issue or a North American issue. It touched everybody. We all have something in common. That was also the thought behind the United Nations that was formed in 1948, that we're all stewards of the world that we're on. So even things like climate change, we do need to get together as a, a series of countries in the world. I think there's around 194 individual countries in the world and talk about issues that trans send our borders. Now, will the World Economic Forum continue? You've asked uh, uh, at least a 500 million uh, 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 pound question here. Um, Dr. Sh- uh, Dr. Uh, um, oh my gosh, his name just went from my mind here. Uh, Dr. Schwab is yeah. getting old. He's 84. He has tried twice to bring in somebody and move into sort of leader emeritus status while somebody else becomes the president. And both of the two people that he brought in uh, are no longer with the organization, in both cases accused of taking some financial incentives to try to influence policy. Dr. Schwab has always kept himself above that fray. And so uh, it is a really good question that if Dr. Schwab were to die tomorrow, will the World Economic Forum continue on? Because they collect nearly 500 million Swiss francs a year to operate on, that's a lot of money. A Swiss franc is worth more than a Canadian dollar. Uh, I think there will be, it's such a um, it's, it's a profitable, not-for-profit business. They, they bring in a lot of money. They actually have tax-exempt status in Switzerland because they are a not-for-profit organization, but there's a lot of cash that comes in here. Uh, and if you ask Davos, all of those people coming in oh, yeah. is a great economic activity for them. So I think there will be pressure to keep this thing going, again, keeping in mind that it's very hard to show you specific results they've achieved, but to bring the world's leaders together, business leaders together, and talk shop, I think it'll still go on in some form. I'm just not sure who will be leading it. Okay, last one, and then I'll let you go, and I really appreciate your time. And we've all seen the clip, and I'm getting reminded by everybody on the text line, well, then how come Klaus Schwab has come out and said, we've infiltrated governments all around the world, and we have this leader, and we have that leader. Um, Explain that. Yeah. So uh, in addition to the conference, of course, again, when you start bringing in that kind of money, you got to do some other things. So along with the big Davos conference that happens in January, they also hold some regional conferences around the way. And then they created uh, what they called the Young Leaders uh, Group. And this was them looking at both political and business leaders, and they would invite them to a different conference. So they didn't go to the big World Economic Forum in Davos, but they would have opportunities for these who they've identified as potential future leaders and invite them to something and, again, expose them to speakers and all this sort of thing. So uh, if you take Ottawa as an example, Justin Trudeau at one time was identified as a future young leader. Right. By the way, so was the son of, of Muammar Gaddafi. So, you know, they try to play across the political spectrum. 
and they say, let's try to get somebody in their 20s and 30s, maybe before they become a prime minister or a president, but somebody who might one day be in those positions and expose them to some of the concepts that we talk about. Their basic underlying concept is one that we are better together, globalization, than we are independently. And that's the, that's the message they push but, of course, again, it's me like, it'd be like me as a Rotary Club saying, I want to help some of the brightest people in Edmonton achieve great things, so I pick them when they're 17. Some of them go on to achieve great things. Some of them don't. So not all of these young leaders go somewhere. But the comment is that, look, this is the influence we've had, because if you look at Christia Freeland, she had been invited. Mm -hmm. Pierre Tr uh, Justin Trudeau, he had been invited. And I'm sure there are some on the conservative side. Oh, sure. Michelle Rumpel-Garner has talked about how she was invited as well, yeah. Right. So, you know, they're just, they're, they're picked. Uh, they have these committees around the world and try to bring them together. Again, this is their mission. They want to keep promoting a global agenda as opposed to a, an individual agenda. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Marvin, thank you so much. A uh, great breakdown. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.